Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened at anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that I saw you had, and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Good morning, Trinity family. As we begin, let me give you a little bit of an update for where we are. Uh, I'm sure that you know that Kansas is in the process of reopening. Uh, that's exciting. That's exciting. Uh, and I want to begin today by telling you a little bit about what that means for Trinity at this time. Uh, the deacons and I are paying close attention to state and local guidelines uh, for gatherings of our size. The safety of our church family and our neighbors are, are, is a very high priority for us. And as of now, we will still remain uh, refrain from holding regular gatherings in our church facility. Uh, we anticipate this continuing towards the end of May, and your church leaders will continue to monitor the situation. Uh, as we are a place where people gather in large numbers and gather closely, um, we want to be very careful to uh, listen to what the guidelines are, and we feel it is wise to wait until we can meet those local and state guidelines. Um, I want you to know your pastors and your deacons are uh, having conversations about uh, when to open, how to open, what that will look like, uh, and we're joyfully anticipating meeting with you again. So please be praying for us as we continue to talk through that. Um, so with that update, um, letting you uh, in on some of that, I also want to let you in on a little bit of my heart and um, maybe uh, 
just kind of tell you where I am, maybe shed some light on why we've made these decisions as we have. And I hope this is clarifying and, and helpful to you. Um, I'm not sure in my 10 years of being a pastor, maybe a little bit more than that, I'm not sure there's been a season that has been so ripe with real and potential disunity uh, in the Christian community. Uh, disunity between churches, disunity in churches, disunity among brothers and sisters in Christ. Emotions are high. I've seen people uh, weep for fear. I've seen people weep for sadness. I've seen people weep in anger. And fear is high. Fear of getting the disease. Fear of dying. Fear of losing your job. Fear of losing rights. Fear of government overreach. And confusion is high. Misinformation is high. I mean, who do you trust? Who do you trust to tell you what's right? Skepticism, therefore, is high, and cynicism is high. And I know my own life, where, um, where fear is high, emotions are high, confusion is high. When that's true of my own life, uh, wisdom, prayer, and humility uh, are, are probably low in my life as well. If someone thinks they have all the answers, they're much smarter than I am. I'm not, I know I'm not a governor, a mayor, or a president, um, but for our little slice of the world here at Trinity, uh, guiding us through this with the deacons has been in, incredibly challenging. And, you know, there's, uh, there's not a chapter in here, there's not an appendix that says, guidelines for reopening a church in a pandemic. That's not there. If you find it, please let me know. I would love to see that. Please, please let me know. It's not in there. And so when we make decisions in this season, uh, we're, we're basing it on biblical principles. And, and I think there are four major biblical principles when a church talks about uh, how we minister and how we gather in this situation. I think one biblical principle is God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love, and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7 We know that God has us in His hands. We know that God is all-powerful. We know that He is for us. He's given us Jesus. What more will, what will He withhold from us? We know these things. And so there's no room for fear in the Christian life. We're often tempted to fear, and we often give in to those temptations, as is natural of man, but, but that is not defining of the Christian life. So decisions during this time should not be made of, out of fear. Second principle, we know that gathering together is precious. Trinity, gathering with you is precious. That is who we are as a church. Yet we might, we might be more than the Sunday morning gathering, but we're certainly not less than the Sunday morning gathering. And so anything that takes us away from that time uh, is, is foreign to us, and it should be. And we should be compelled to meet together as soon as we can. The, the third principle, love for neighbor. Jesus tells us, uh, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And that encompasses the whole law. So half of the law of God is about loving your neighbor as you love yourself. It's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so that means in this season, that means 
maybe being apart for an extended period of time. That means in this season, maybe wearing a mask when you don't want to, not for your benefit, but maybe the benefit of those around you who maybe it'll make them feel better. Maybe it'll make them feel more comfortable. It's about loving your neighbor and their safety and being, being a top priority and their, their, their comfort being a top priority and showing them that you love them. And, and finally, the, the hardest one for me and the least popular one of these principles is submission. You love that word as much as I do? No, we hate that word. Submission. Well, Romans 13, Titus 3, 1 through 3, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17 tells us submit to the authority. All authority. Because all authority has been placed by God. All authority has been placed by God. And this was written... Especially, take Romans 13, for example, was written by Paul to a church telling them to submit to the authority. Who are they submitting to in Rome? They're submitting to Caesar. That culture, that government is way more corrupt and way more evil than anything we've ever seen in America. Abortion? They loved abortion. If they had a kid who was born, they didn't want him, they'd leave him on the side of a mountain. In the early church, Christians would go and take them home. Sexual deviance and corruption and persecution of Christians and idolatry, it's in that culture that Paul says, submit to the authorities. God put them in power for the eternal good of His people and for His glory. And we know God, we talk about it all the time, we know God, even bad decisions from governments God will turn out for His good and for our glory. Somehow. That's what we're promised. And Paul puts it like this in Romans 13. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. And so is there a place for, uh, is there a place for civil disobedience? Of course there is. I, I, of course there is. But I know in my heart... Disobedience is the default. I know in my heart, I love my freedom and I love being in charge. And so my heart is like a hammer that's looking for a nail and I want to get as much as I can. I want to get as much power. I want to be in the driver's seat. And we talked about there's no room for fear in the Christian life uh, except for one type of fear, fear of the Lord. And God says, to resist the authorities is to resist Him. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. My heart is prone to jump too soon to disobedience, and so we must talk about civil disobedience wisely and humbly and with fear and trembling because we want to get it right. We want to make sure that we are not disobeying God. And so, all of this to say is under the understanding that, uh, that there are other churches that are gospel-believing churches that will make different decisions than we will. And they're having difficult conversations just like we are. And I'm not pastoring those churches. 
Trust me, the, the 150 people that call Trinity home, that's enough for the deacons and I to give an account to God. I don't need to pastor anybody else's church. I'm not trying to dunk on anybody, slam on anybody. Uh, we just have enough to handle here. And so I can't tell you that I am so smart to know exactly what to do in this situation. I can't tell you that I found the Word of God that makes everything crystal clear and this is exactly how we're going to go moving forward. I can't tell you it's not there. We have to prayerfully seek the wisdom of God among our brothers. I can't tell you that. But Christian, this is what I can tell you. We know exactly what God expects from His sons and daughters in the middle of suffering. I can tell you exactly what we are to do individually. I can tell you exactly what we are to be thinking and how we are to be loving and how we are to be acting. How can I do that? Because I think it's really clear in our passage today. Our passage today tells us how to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, even in a pandemic. Paul's writing the book of Philippians to a church in Philippi. Paul is in prison. He is probably writing this uh, chained between two Roman soldiers. Paul is not sure if he's going to ever see the Philippian church again. He's not sure if he's going to his death. We see this. Uh, verse 17 says, Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. What does he mean? He means, I'm chained between two Roman soldiers. I might be killed as a sacrifice for the good of the gospel. He proclaimed the gospel to the people of Philippi, and he might be killed for it. And Paul is in chains, and he's writing to a church that is being threatened with persecution themselves. Verse 28 of chapter 1 talks about their, their opponents. They have opponents. Verse 29 and 30 of chapter 1 says it clearly. For it has been granted to you, church. Think about getting this letter. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I, Paul, had, and now here that I still have. Think on that. Philippian church, you have been granted the gift to suffer for the sake of Christ. We could chew on that for the rest of our lives. And this persecution is coming in a city of Philippi that is a proud Roman city. They're a Roman colony given citizenship by the emperor himself. And they were proud of that. And in this town, the imperial cult Worshipping the emperor was a given at every situation, every moment, every gathering. And so could you see where the persecution would come from? I'm a Christian now. The emperor is not God. 
I'm a Christian now. There's only one Lord, and that's Jesus. And that's Jesus. And you can, you can understand why passages like Romans 13 we talked about earlier, why that was written. Because you can imagine the city going, this, this little church, these little Christians, man, they're really bad citizens. They're trying to overthrow the Roman government. No, 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 no. That's not what we're trying to do. In fact, Paul says, no, we're going to submit to the authority as best we can. If the authority does not command something that God prohibits, we're going to be good citizens. I just can't call Caesar Lord. I just can't call Caesar God. But I'm going to pay my taxes. But even that wasn't working. And so Paul sees from afar this church under tremendous pressure. And he sees this church from afar and he sees the potential for something disastrous. Can you see that too? Under this kind of tremendous pressure, this little church, this little baby church that Paul, that the Holy Spirit started through Paul's ministry, that's a, that seems like a fragile thing. So Paul writes and he, he encourages them and he says, in the midst of your suffering, this is how you live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Now, are we under persecution? No. Is our situation one-to-one? Is our situation exactly the same as the one in, in Philippi? No, of course not. Of course not. But here's the idea. This is why we study this passage. Is If it's true, if this passage is true for them, if these commands for, for that church is true under persecution, then surely it's true for us. That's the idea. If Paul's commands for Christian living in this passage are true when the world is crumbling and it's hard to obey and you're under tremendous pressure of persecution, then surely it's true for us, even in this difficult situation that we find ourselves. It's not as difficult as them. So, how do we live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus? Let me read that to you because it's a strange passage and it does strange things to my heart. I'm going to read the verse where we get that phrase, verse 27. Let's read it again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Wow. So, before we get into the practical applications, how we live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ in this crazy situation that we find ourselves in, before we get into the practical application, let's talk about the heartbeat of that command. If that command is the body, what gives that body life? What's the heartbeat? What's the heartbeat of the Christian life? What's the heartbeat of Christian holiness. Beholding Christ the King gives life to the Christian life. Beholding Christ as King is what gives life to Christian life. 
This is what he says in verse 9 of chapter 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why do we pursue holy living? Why do we pursue a life worthy of Jesus? It's because we behold his exalted state and it captures our heart. And he's the king. He's the king. What won't we do for our king? My, we are so soon, we are so quick to forget. That's why we've got to live our life in here because I'm so quick to forget the glorious king that we have. And sometimes he becomes, I'm ashamed to say it, sometimes he feels more like a burden. I've got, got to obey Jesus. What a wicked sinner of a pastor you have. Behold the king. And someday soon, Church in Philippi, someday soon every opponent who is persecuting you will bow their knee to King Jesus. Every, every person who has flogged you and whipped you in prison for the sake of Jesus will bow the knee someday to our King. Wow. Every man, every woman, every child, every president, every king, every virus bows the knee to our king. And one day, one day soon, death itself will bow the knee. That's the heartbeat of living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus. The other heartbeat is, so we got one heartbeat is behold the king, behold Christ as king. The second heartbeat of the holiness for the Christian life is the mind of Christ the servant. So we got view of Christ as the king and we've got the mind of Christ the servant. On the cross, Jesus, the king, revealed the prototype for Christian living. On the cross of Christ, we see the manner of life that we must live to be worthy of the gospel of Jesus. It's on the cross. Our prototype isn't the throne that he's sitting on. Our prototype is the cross. I mean, he says that the mind of Christ is what does all of this. Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. In 27, he says, I may hear that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. What mind, Paul? The mind, that word mind, goes all through this passage. It, it's a thread that goes through all this passage. What mind? And then verse 5, he says this, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form God of God, did not consider his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness 
of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That is the heartbeat of the Christian life. The mind of Christ. He had all the privileges and rights of divinity, and yet he did not consider these privileges and rights something to be clung to, to be snatched, to be gobbled up, to be held with white knuckles. Rather, he emptied himself. He was God in flesh who emptied himself of all the comforts of divinity, all the privileges of divinity. And he became a servant and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Church in Philippi. Can you, can you think how Paul is feeling about these people? He, he gives them his ministry. They come to Christ. Can you, be, can you imagine him, his eyes swelling with tears as he's writing this? My children, his children in the faith, have this mind, have the mind of Jesus, who is obedient to death, even death on the cross. What's he saying? The heartbeat of Christian holiness is to be willing to die for the sake of our King, even the humiliating death on the cross. Can you see Paul just weeping, writing this letter to people he loves, knowing that that's going to be some of them? And so, with those two heartbeats, with those two motivations, beholding Christ as King, and having the mind of Christ, the servant who dies on the cross, how should the view of Christ and His mind make our life worthy of the Gospel of Jesus even in the middle of this pandemic? Number one, how do we live a life worthy of the Gospel of Jesus in every situation, even this one? In a life lived worthy of the Gospel, the view of Christ the King is a fear killer. To view Christ as King is a fear killer. He holds us in His hands. He calms storms. He creates the universe. Is there anything that's beyond His control? No. He does all things for the good of His people and for His glory. There's nothing out of his control. So we must not fear. In this pandemic, we must not fear. Now, now listen, I'm not saying don't wear a mask. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying don't be concerned about government overreach. I'm not saying that. Fear is believing and then acting as if everything is out of control. That's the fear we're talking about. Driving the speed limit is not being afraid. Not licking doorknobs is not 
Not being afraid. Not licking doormats, not not being afraid. You know what I mean. It's good practice, it's wise not to lick doorknobs. You're gonna get sick. Doesn't mean you're afraid. We're talking about that fear that wells up within us that we're tempting, to, tempting us to say, everything's out of control. And then propelling us to make fearful decisions. There's no place for that. Christ is king and nothing happens without his say-so. Nothing happens without his say-so. From, from the tippity-top of the government, Romans 13 says every government is put in place by God. So, Obama, put in place by God. Trump, put in place by God. And Proverbs says God turns their hearts like a river. Nothing is out of his control. Nothing. Viruses are not out of God's control. Your job is not in the hands of your boss. It is in the hands of God. Christian, if it happens to you, Jesus who died for you allowed it for your eternal good and His glory. Everything. Everything. So where is fear of the virus when we know with all our heart and we believe that it will soon bow the knee to Jesus? Where's fear of our opponents when we know that they will soon bow the knee to our King? Where's the fear of governments when we know that they will bow the knee to our King? Be not afraid. Number two, the life lived worthy of the gospel is a life united to other believers. What does he say? He says this at least in two places. Let's read chapter 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, the mind of Christ. And he's writing this to a church. Okay? If you don't have a church family, this doesn't just apply to you by yourself and who you interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. Be kind to those people, but this is about a church. This is for church. If you don't have a church, find a church. goes back to what we said when I first got here. We made a big deal about this. Unity, unity, unity. Above almost anything, church unity. Why? Jesus says it declares that we are his disciples. Jesus, in fact, prays for us. And he says this, that they may be one, just as the Father, just as you, the Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our unity with one another and our unity in Christ with one another is a screaming message to the world that Jesus is Lord. How important is our unity in church? And so when churches are disunified, when we gossip, when we argue, when we, when we belittle, when we scoff, when we are bitter, we are making it more difficult for the world to see how valuable Jesus really is. Think about it. Oh, 
The world looks at the church and goes, man, they say they found this Jesus guy and he transforms lives, but look, they're gossiping more than, more than my workplace. They say that Jesus is King of Kings. They say Jesus died and he rose again and transformed their lives, but look, they lie to each other more than, more than my family lies to each other. So Paul says, if you have experienced the things of Christ, if you have felt the incredible value of a life following Jesus, if you have any, if you experience any compassion, any joy together, any love, any of all these things, make my joy complete by being unified. A life lived worthy of the gospel is a life that is in unity with other believers. The life worthy of the gospel is a humble life. Countercultural. Our culture likes big. We're the 15 minutes of fame culture. We're the Twitter culture and Facebook culture where everybody can say whatever they want and have an audience. Humility is a gross word in our culture. But, this, but God... The Son emptied Himself. God the Son made Himself a servant. God the Son hung Himself on a cross. And Paul says, have that mind. Other places in Scripture it says, long for a peaceful life. Long for a quiet life. Don't long for a life in the spotlight. Long for a quiet life. That's what's most valuable. How countercultural is that? It's crazy. What a picture. The king that every knee will soon bow to, the king that every tongue will soon confess, hangs on a cross while the church he died for rejects their own crosses and makes pretend thrones out of empty, broken, sinful garbage. What a picture. What a picture. Do we need the cross of Christ or what? We must guard our tongues. We must love each other. We must speak well of each other. We must not just guard our tongues. We must guard our computer screens. We must guard our text messages. We must love one another and be humble, not looking to vain conceit and selfish ambition. Vain conceit, empty pride, lifting ourselves up, often by bringing other people down. Selfish ambition desiring to achieve for our own sake. And Christian, this is talking to a people in a church. Vain conceit in church. Selfish ambition in church. That stuff happens. we got to guard ourselves against it. I am prone to these things. 
Number four, the life lived worthy of the gospel is doing salvation day by day. This is what it said, chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Salvation is something we receive by grace through faith, and then salvation is something we do. Are you with me? Salvation is something we receive by grace. It is a free gift through faith, through believing, not works. We receive it that way, and then it turns into something we do. Work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. And he says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Church, taking the mind of Christ as the world is watching is a big deal. You are a son or a daughter of the Most High God. Your life matters. Your life matters. The way you live your life matters. You have significance. Your life has weight. And that is great and that is glorious. But we must also understand that the way the Bride of Christ, the Church, the way the Bride of Christ displays herself to the world is a big deal. It's a big deal. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do not take living out the gospel during the pandemic. Do not take it lightly. Remember, He is the King of kings who gave Himself up for us, who died for us. And so Paul's writing to the Philippian church and he's pleading with them. He's saying, look, you are... When you suffer, you are on display for the world like no other time. And so he says, understand the gravity of this situation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for the one whom we follow died for us. Feel the weight of that. Understand that he's the king of kings. He deserves our obedience every day. Yes, when we fail him, his grace overflows us and his mercy overflows us. But don't allow that to lull you to sleep. Your life matters. Only what's done for Christ will last through eternity. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Number six, the life lived worthy of the gospel is filled with the word of life. Verse 16, holding fast, holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life. So, church, be tremendously skeptical of any other word. How many words are out there right now? You got alphabet soup, don't you? You've got CNN, you've got Fox, you've got ABC, you've got CBS, you've got FB, you've got Facebook, you've got KFC. No, they're just chicken. 
You got White House press briefings, you got the WHO, you got the CDC, you've got Alphabet Soup coming at you every single day. We consume, if we consume more media than we do the Word of God, of course we're going to be confused. Of course we're going to be confused. And notice how he says it, cling to the Word. What does that mean? It's, gonna, it's, it's easy for us to forget it and leave it there. It's easy for someone to come and snatch it away. It's easy for, for the news media to come snatch it away and bring fear in our hearts or bring cynicism or skepticism or any of these things that have no place in the Christian life. It's so easy for them to snatch the Word of God out from us and cling to it. It's a Word of life. It's a Word of life. Hold fast to this word, not CNN or Fox News, because this word is perfect. This word is always right. This word won't just tell me what I want to hear. This word doesn't have a budget that determines its message. that bleeds, it leads. Not this book. This book does not change with popular opinion. This is the word of life. Everything else is the word of death in comparison. Hold fast to the word. Finally, the life lived worthy of the gospel is filled with gladness and joy even in the face of death. Let's finish out this passage together. Verse 17 18. Even if I am to be poured out, Paul says, as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice in me. Let's take this heart test together. Let's take this heart test together. When we suffer, do we rejoice in that we can suffer for the sake of Christ by living our life worthy of the gospel, even in the midst of suffering? Do we rejoice in that? Why gladness and joy even in suffering? Paul's writing this to someone who's been beaten to a pulp on multiple occasions, who's been flogged and whipped and thrown in jail and shipwrecked and stoned almost to death. And I mean, this is his laundry list of things that's happened to him. I mean, it's so bad that people are saying, oh, you can't be an apostle. You can't be somebody who God sent. Look how beat up you are. That's who Paul is. And he's saying through chipped and broken teeth. He's saying through probably tremendous pain as he lives his life all the time. Tremendous pain. He says, Boy, rejoice with me that we have been granted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. If he says that, how glorious must suffering be for the Christian? If he says that, what imaginable, unimaginable joy we must find in eternity for all the suffering we do for the sake of Christ. 
If Paul is joyfully taking the beatings, if Paul is joyfully taking the stoning, if he is joyfully taking the shipwreck, how unimaginably brilliant must our eternity be with Christ. It must be unspeakable. It must be, it must be so awesome and so joyous that we can't, comp- we can't comprehend Suffering for the sake of Christ must bring for us in eternity something of such joy and brilliance that we can't even imagine it here. He doesn't say just deal with it. He doesn't say just get through it with a stiff upper lip. He says rejoice. Rejoice in what it's bringing you. Rejoice in that for eternity this will be your legacy. How much grace does God have for us that he allows us to suffer for Christ and enjoy him forever in eternity. How much joy must Paul have and must that bring him? And how much joy must that bring us for eternity? What we do for Christ, especially in suffering, is the only things that will last and echo for eternity. So Paul's telling the Philippian church and Paul's telling Trinity Baptist Church, don't waste your life. Live a life worthy of the good news of Jesus. Live a life worthy of the good news of Jesus. And here is even the most gracious part of all this if you're like me you're thinking man oh that's so hard I I can't possibly do that here's some great news verse 13 says for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure how can we be humble how can we not grumble and complain We grumble and complain? Yeah, this passage says grumbling and complaining and rejoicing separates us from the world. Grumbling and complaining defines this crooked generation. Rejoicing defines us. How in the world can we make that happen? How is that possible? Man, I grumble so much. How can I do it? How? I can't do it. You're right. We can't do it. Who does it? It is God who works in you. It is, well, I I can't, how do I even want to do these things? It is God who wills in you. Isn't that good news? Thank you, Jesus. And it is all His good pleasure to take sinners like me and, and propel us to live lives worthy of the good news. It is God who does it. How much grace does he have for us? He commands it, he propels it, and then he's the one who does it in us. Thank the Lord for his grace and his mercy. I'll leave you with this. I stole this from another pastor online. Behold, social media find doom and gloom. Behold the news find doom and gloom. Behold the crowds at the stores, find doom and gloom. Behold the CDC, find doom and gloom. Behold the White House press briefings, find doom and gloom. Behold 
Christ as King and find safety and security and courage. And behold the mind of Christ and find hope and grace and salvation. Church, Jesus loves you. Your life matters. You're you're a son or daughter of the Most High God. We have a tremendous King who deserves our obedience. We have a tremendous King who deserves our obedience and He settles for sinners. We have a King who deserves our obedience and He is the one who makes us obey. He's the one who wills us to obey. He's the one who performs it. How much grace. Let us seek to live lives worthy of the gospel even as we suffer. Let us watch how we talk to one another, how we love one another. Let us watch how we disagree. When we disagree, how are we disagreeing? Let us remember that we are on display for the world in this time. Let us show grace and mercy to one another because Christ has shown it to us. We love you. We'll see you next time.